If you have the YouVersion app, you can also find the sermon outline in the events section. Can you pull this microphone down a little bit, Tom? I can hear a little bit of feedback. You can find this outline in the events section. I want to pray for us before we begin to dig in. Father, thank you so much for our time of worship through song. Thank you for this word, and thank you that we have an opportunity to be challenged by your word today. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So... I want to start somewhere different than where I had you open up. And uh, where we're going to start, it, it'll be up on the screen, uh, and uh, I'll read through it. But it's in Matthew chapter 16. It's in Matthew 16, and here's where we're starting. Now, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. It's, it's clear that Jesus wanted to know what the buzz was about him, right? He was healing, he was teaching, he was preaching, word was going around, and, and he wanted to know, hey, guys, who do people say that I am? And, and everything that they answered right there, right, uh, it's, it's just amazing, right? If, those, if that were enough, that would have been crazy good. But it says, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? He, he wanted to know what they thought. You are the Christ the son of the living God. The aim of the ministry of Jesus Christ was salvation of souls. And for that to start, the people of Israel would have to recognize who Jesus was. Really, it had to start with the disciples recognizing who Jesus was. Peter's confession was not, hey, you're a good teacher. You're a great prophet from God. You're the Elijah that we've been waiting on. No, Peter's confession was you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. You're the one that was promised back in the garden when, when Adam and Eve were there. You're the one that was promised to be the seed from Abraham that would bless the entire world. You're the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You're the king that's going to sit upon the throne of David forever. These were the things that, that Peter was declaring at that moment. You're the Christ. Verse 17, and Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I don't know about you guys, what that last sentence does for you and for us as a church, right, and what it should do for us. I hope yep, it's still up on the screen. So what, look at what it says, right? It says the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. What's the purpose of a gate? The purpose of a gate is to keep people out. And so what Jesus is declaring here is that when the church is being the church and when it's marching forward, when the gospel is advancing from there, the church will prevail. The church will not be stopped. The gates of Hades cannot stop the marching of the gospel. And so then I think, I mean, I look around and I'm, I'm struggling, guys. I'm struggling not just with, with us and, and, and then those of us that meet within the four walls of this church, but I'm struggling with the church as a whole because I look at our world and I look at the church and I look at our nation doesn't it seem like the gates of Hades are working? Doesn't it seem as though the gospel has stopped advancing? Doesn't it seem like the things that Jesus is saying here, like there's something missing? And, then, and so if we're living right, when I say living right, I'm not talking about perfection. But as the church, if we're being the church of Jesus Christ and, and everything that he declares here, then what Jesus is saying is that the gospel will not be stopped. Nothing can stop it. 
So, so really what he's saying is nothing outside the body of Christ can stop the body of Christ. So when I look in, I mean, what is it? Some might say, well, we're just living in the end times, and we could be. We could be living in the end times and where the Bible says that people will gather for themselves teachers that will preach and teach what their itching ears want to hear. That could be the case. But, but couldn't it also be the case that maybe something's missing in the body of Christ? I, I mean, if we just attribute it to the fact that the Lord's going to return soon, we can just stop working and doing what we're supposed to do and just get ready, right? No. no so, so if I'm looking at this right and I'm thinking about this right, the only thing, and I, I believe this with all my heart, the only thing that can stop the advancement of the gospel from the body of Christ is the body of Christ itself. And you know what it is? It's unity. It's being together for the sake of the gospel. And I, and I really believe that as a body of believers, the lack of unity in the body of Christ, it's stopping the advancement of the gospel. When the church is together for the sake of the gospel, nothing can stop it. And Satan already knows this. He already knows that to be the case. And, and look back in the book of Acts when he began to start attacking the church. You know what he did? He threatened persecution. And the disciples said, as for you, you decide whether we obey men or God. We can't help but to speak of the things that we have seen. And they went on preaching. Then they were brought in and beaten for the sake of the gospel, and they walked away. They walked away from that rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the gospel. And then that wasn't enough. Satan brought in persecution in the church. He said, well, I'll just start killing them. And when they dispersed, what did they do? The Bible says they scattered, and they taught Christ wherever they went. And then in between those things, he tried something else. He tried to divide the church because he thought, well, all these other things aren't working, so I'll get the Grecian widows angry and at the Jewish widows, and, and there'll be division in the church handled that well, and it didn't work. See, when the church handles these things well, the church continues to march forward. I've often wondered what those outside the body of Christ think when they travel down a church street. You know, most cities have a church street, and you know why those names were given to church street? Because usually there was one, two, three, maybe even four churches on church street. And so here comes Joe, who's searching out Christ, and, and he doesn't know what church to go to. As a matter of fact, down in Florida, we had an unofficial church street. Truth is, is we had like six churches within a three-block area down there in Florida. Two of them were Baptist churches that used to be the same church. Divided in 1923. Division still taking place. So, I mean, each church is sure of their system. Each church has colleges and scholars ready to, for, to defend their system from God's word. What about the man who's hurting? What about the woman who's searching? And when they come into the body of Christ, how will they know, or how are they to know, I learned a new word this week, which franchise is best? Isn't that kind of true? Maybe you've already heard the story, trying to lighten it up a little bit, and, uh, of the man that was rescued from the remote island. Rescues were, were, rescuers were amazed at his ability to survive and how long he had survived on his own, but they were equally or maybe even more amazed at the fact that when they got there, he had three buildings built. And so they looked at him and said, well, what are these buildings? And he points to the first one. He says, that's my house. And then he points to the second one, that's the church I worship in. And he ignored the third building, and when the rescuers pushed him a little bit, and they said, what about that building? He said, oh, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> it's only funny because it's true, right? Which makes it sad. 
when there's disunity within the body of Christ, individual bodies of Christ, that keeps the gospel from advancing forward. And if the gospel of grace is going to go out from the body of Christ here at Milford, if the gates of Hades will not prevail against the gospel of Christ going out from here at Milford, then we have to fight to maintain unity. And if we're going to maintain unity, then we're going to need to live like Jesus. That's the title of today's message, to live like Jesus. So, with your Bibles open to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, here, here's what we're going to begin to see. We'll see unity commanded. Look at verses 1 through 4. Therefore, whenever there's a therefore, therefore, you have to stop and ask, what's it there for? Right, so he's pointing back to something. He's pointing back to verse 27 in chapter 1. And in verse 27 of chapter 1, that's where he said to live a life in the manner worthy of the gospel. That's where he said to stand firm in one spirit, striving together for the sake of the gospel in the face of persecution. That's what that therefore is there for. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. So Paul, Paul beginning to dig in here about unity, right? He's already mentioned it, so this shows you how important this is. This shows you the task of what's at hand. And and why would Paul feel as though he needs to deal with this again? Well, if you flip over one page or look over to chapter 4 and verse 2, it becomes clear that there were at least two women in the body of Christ at Philippi that were divided. What were they divided over? It doesn't say. The truth is, is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what they were divided over unless it was some theological issue that changed the truth of the gospel. They could have been divided over how the widows were cared for. They could have disagreed over the songs that were being selected for worship. They could have disagreed over which home would host that special event. It doesn't matter what they were divided over. The truth is is they were just divided over trivial things most likely. And that's still the case in most churches today. Man, I can't tell you how much I've prayed about this message this week. I I can't tell you how much I've wrestled with what I'm about to say next. Because the truth is, is oftentimes we like to look at issues from the outside without looking inside. And when I think about us, you know, I became a Christian at this church right, right behind me in January of the 8th of 1995. I was baptized I preached my first message here on a Sunday, no, a Sunday morning, throwing my ring around. April was worried I was going to lose it. In large part, I grew up here, and in large part, I made a lot of mistakes here. But the truth is, is if we look back at the history of our church, the lack of harmony within our own faith family here at Milford has done a great deal of harm for the cause of the gospel continuing to go out from here. I'll be the first to admit that my own lack of maturity back in 2003 and 2004 caused me to pick up my Bible and take it and go somewhere else. Never fully convinced that I was in the Lord's will at that point, but I was angry. I was hurting. I just left. 
And when we look back through the recent history of the body of Christ here at Milford, I want you to know that as I think about these things, that there's no sides to choose because Satan won. He won here. There's no side to choose. There's no saying this side was right or that side was right. But to build or not to build, that's what we went through in the 80s. The worship wars of the late 90s and early 2000s. Two services or one. Pews or chairs. And these are things that we, we as a family, let divide us. These are issues that Satan used to get in between us being together for the sake of the gospel. And Paul, he's going to expand upon what it means to live a life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And he issues those four if statements, right? We saw those if statements in there. Most believe that Paul intends to say like, well, if this is here, then you know, this, this, well, since this is here, this is what's going to happen. I don't see him like that. I see them more as these if-then statements, right? If, if there is any encouragement in being in Christ, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any consolation from His love, if any affection and, and, and mercy or care, then this is what is going uh, to happen. I believe God's, in, God in, God's intent here is for the reader, the hearer of this passage, to see these statements as a way of measuring their walk in Christ. If you're in Christ, think about all that means. And think about all it means. In Christ, we're redeemed, we're forgiven, we're chosen, we're adopted, we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we're promised that we're going to be raised up on the last day. In Christ, we're told nothing can separate us from the love of God that's found in him. In Christ, all of these things are there. How could that not change the way we live? So is there any, any consolation of love? He'll expand upon that example here in a few moments. But what does sacrificial love from someone mean to you? And doesn't it change the way you interact with them when you know what they've given up to love you? And Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, listen, if you're comforted by that, it's going to change the way you live. If any fellowship with the Spirit, remember what fellowship is. It's not spending time together. As a matter of fact, it means participation, partnership with. If you're partnered together with the Holy Spirit, then you'll love each other, and that love will be seen through acts of compassion. So if these things are present, then... And that's when Paul in there in verse 2, make my joy complete. What a burden to place on others, right? Hey, guys, it's your responsibility to make my joy complete. That's uh, not really how he's meaning it. Paul's not making them responsible for his happiness. In fact, we know that Paul is not concerned about his happiness at all at this point because he's already said, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Christ, and, and that means sacrifice. To die is gain. I'm going to stay here. He says, of being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. You know, when I read that, I like to try to think of ways to simplify it. And this is the way I hear Paul saying what he's saying and trying to make it simple. Make my joy complete by being together, together, together for the sake of the gospel. Be together. See, nothing sucks the joy out of the heart of a church leader than dealing with a body of believers that are gossiping and fighting. And when we're gossiping and fighting, that keeps us from fulfilling our primary mission of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. We don't have time to deal with the plan of discipleship when we're fighting to keep the body of Christ together. We don't have time 
to, uh, to plan for reaching the city for Christ when we're meeting about so-and-so and so-and-so. We don't have time to pray together for the sake of the mission when we're too busy praying about the pain and hurt that we cause one another. We don't have time to ask if we're, what we're doing is biblical when we set up our systems and seek to protect our systems over and above what this says. See, we divide over trivial things so often. If we're in Christ if we're in him, if we're comforted by his love, if we're partnered together with his spirit, if we're loving each other, man, we're going to be together, together, together for the sake of the gospel. In verses 3 and 4, he's saying the same thing from a negative and a positive. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Man, the power of those first two words should awaken us. Do nothing. And then from there, we start from, from what? And he says, from selfishness or vain conceit. The moment we know that our minds and our hearts are trying to protect something for ourselves, do nothing. Do nothing. Imagine the division that would stop in the body of Christ if we were to simply apply that rule, do nothing. Man, I think back to myself. I told elders after I left here and reached back to some people and apologized about my own immaturity. And I told, I said, just realizing where I was at at that point in my life. And man, I was convinced. I was convinced that we needed to do some things to make the church relevant, to reach people who were outside. And I'm still convinced of that. Please understand that. Listen, if we don't reach people who are not in this building, this church is going to die. So I'm still convinced of those things, but now I'm even more convinced that when those things are not biblical, when we're not arguing over something that's biblical, when we're not trying to defend something that's biblical, and instead we're trying to defend our systems or our man-made rules over and above what God's word and his will is for the body of Christ, when those things pop up, like, all right, Larry, you're making this about you, what does the Bible say? Do nothing. Do nothing. And imagine the pain that would stop in the body of Christ here at Milford from these days forward when that selfish person pops up and we know we're trying to protect what we think is best or what we really want. We know that's what's happening. Just, all right, do nothing. Be still. Allow God to work. And from the positive side of that, he says, with humility, consider, consider others more important than yourselves. It's simple, Right? Consider the desires of others more important than your own. If it's not clearly defined in God's word, defer to others. Realize that you may not get your way. Really, uh, when you're in the place of placing others ahead of yourself for the sake of the kingdom of God, you're never more like Christ. I mean, than then. You're so much like him at that moment. Don't protect your way. Don't defend your opinions for the sake of remaining together, for the sake of the gospel of grace, put others first. James says it this way. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. 
Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then he calls to submit. So if, if Christ is Lord, if Christ is Lord, then unity is not only commanded, then unity must be fought for. It must be fought for. Look at Philippians 2.5. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. The, the, the reader, the hearer of this great letter was commanded to have the attitude of Christ, to be just like Jesus. And in verses 6 eight, we, we see, through 8, we see humility modeled. And, and now these verses, uh, many believe, are uh, a, a hymn that the early church used to sing. There's no a way of directly proving that or denying it. And, uh, and so if it is a hymn, we don't know if Paul wrote it and it was used from this or if it was written before that. I mean, we know Paul's a Holy Spirit-inspired writer of God's word, so he saw fit to put these words in here. It says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus or have this attitude among yourselves. Who, verse 6, as he already existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. These words start at the top, right? Jesus existed before all things. My mind goes to some verses that we've been reading in Core 52. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Let us make mankind in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over all the earth and over every crawling thing that crawls. So he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Notice he said, let us. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 tells us that he's the image of the invisible God. All things were made by him and for him. This is that same Jesus. This is that same one who took on the form of flesh. And he didn't consider that equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself. And we should see and get this picture in our mind of like pouring out a pitcher and emptying it. Jesus emptied himself. He was both fully God and fully human. Once again, that's really hard to grasp when we dig through that. Jesus could heal. Jesus could walk on water. Jesus could speak and the winds and waves obey him. Jesus could read the hearts and minds of people. But when it came to using the God card for himself, Jesus didn't do it. He emptied himself. Yeah, there, there's a perfect example of this when Jesus was arrested. You may remember in Matthew chapter 26, they show up in the garden to arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? He pulls out the sword and chops off the ear of someone. And uh, so he's either a horrible aim with his sword or something. But Jesus, you remember what he told him. Put your sword away. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. And look what he says. This is where we see that Jesus didn't pull out the God card on himself. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? How then would the scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? So this hymn, this text summarizes what the scripture said the Christ would do. He would take the form of a slave, right? He would become, be born in the likeness of man. The writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been tempted in every manner just as we are, yet without sin. 
He humbled himself. And this humility has already been described. And the divine took the corrupt nature of mankind. And you might think, right? You think, well, the divine took the corrupt nature of mankind. He was sinless, and so he proved that man could be sinless. And, and wouldn't that be enough, right? All right? God has proven that man could be sinless. And so all those people that lived before, yeah, maybe they're out of luck. But at least the people moving ahead can see that it's possible to be sinless. But it was more than that. He said he humbled himself and became obedient to death. At this point, one might start to get in mind some men like uh, Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or people who died for good causes and, and that, that Jesus was just uh, an example of something like that. And, but, but Paul, the Holy Spirit, wanted to make sure we understood and took this a step further by being obedient to death, death on a cross. Why does he mention that? Why does he mention that? Well, the Jews understood that the cross, to be hung on a cross was to be cursed. Galatians 3.13, it'll be up on the screen. The Romans wouldn't kill a Roman citizen on the cross. It was only for, for non-citizens and, and prisoners. Even, even a Roman prisoner wouldn't be killed that way. You know how somebody dies on a cross? I know I've explained this, and some of you have heard it before. Actually, the cross was... Uh, not really necessarily invented by the Romans. It started with the Persians who put a stake in the ground and they sharpened the stake and then they would take the victim and, and spread them out on, like quarter them and then they would drop their body right on top of the stake and they would be impaled and, and they would die. And the Romans decided, well, that wasn't vicious enough. And so uh, they took that idea of a piece of wood and then they decided, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to nail people to the cross. And so when they would nail them to the cross, you know, we see the pictures, and the pictures usually have the nail going through the hand of the victim. Truth is, is that the, the nail would go through the wrist, and if you touch your wrist, you feel those two bones that are in there. And so those bones could support the nail. And then when they would be driven in there, there's a nerve that runs up in here that it would sever, and it would send just great pain all the way throughout the shoulders. And so, so that was there, and it would also kind of draw in the fingers that was there. So that, that's one part. And then they would take the feet of the victim, and they would put them together, and then they would take one spike and drive it through kind of the similar area in the ankles, uh, but with their legs slightly bent, and the victim would be on the cross sometimes for days. Sometimes for days they could survive on the cross. And this is why this was agonizing, because... As they would slouch down and not able to take oxygen into their lungs, their lungs would start producing uh, fluid and start filling up with fluid, and a victim would actually really, literally die from drowning on the cross from fluid built up in their lungs. And so in order to keep that from happening every now and then, the, the victim would pull up on his wrist and push up on his ankles just to be able to get a little bit of oxygen into the lungs and slow down that process. And the, the human will to survive, they would just keep doing that over and over and over. And, and isn't it amazing that's when we read the Bible, when they wanted to speed up the death on that day, they went to break their legs. Now you know why. So they couldn't push up and get that oxygen into their lungs. And so Jesus died on a cross. He became obedient to that point, a humiliating death. And we know, we know as followers of Christ today what that was for. That was to be a covering, a propitiation for our sins, so that we could look at that and know that we would not have to suffer because of our own sins, an eternity in hell. And this is what Jesus did. The cross was so brutal. 
that the one who spoke the universe into existence, the one who created the very trees, that he was now hanging upon one of them. Do you remember what Paul said? Do you remember how he started this section off? Have this attitude among yourselves, which is the same as that of Christ Jesus. So Paul, that's what I have to do. That's what we have to do as a body of Christ. If Jesus is Lord, then being together for the sake of the gospel, having the mind of Christ, becoming a bondservant of God, he took on flesh of humanity. He became obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. We are commanded to be just like our Lord. Do you know how we often stop? We often stop at just praising God for this at this point. It's enough to praise God. Praise God. Thank you, God. Thank you so much for doing that. It's a natural response for what God has done. But true praise only begins with words. True praise is carried along in our actions. The way we live, the way we love others, the willingness that we have to be together for the sake of the gospel. Can you see how living this way would totally transform the body of Christ here at Milford? How it would change everything. Many of the issues, not only just here at Milford, many of the issues that we divide over in the body of Christ within uh, these walls and outside of these walls from other churches, man, they would disappear. They would disappear. We would begin to see how we would allow trivial issues to gain too much of a stronghold in the body of Christ. And what would happen? Well, look at verses 9 through 11. We see God glorified. Verse 9, for this reason... Also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. What's the reason? His obedience to the point of death on a cross. His humility shown by his willingness to take the form of a human. His, that he willingly laid aside his divine rights for the sake of humanity. God not only exalted him, but you see the word in the, he highly exalted super exalted him. Jesus was given a name above every name. And we'll see what that name is here in a few moments. Verse 10, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. The lordship of Jesus Christ will be understood by spiritual beings, those who are in heaven, angels and demons, human beings, those who are on the earth, and dead people. That's what the text says. There will not be an angel, demon, nor human being that's ever existed that will not bow to the name of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow. Look at verse 11. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name that is given to Jesus is Lord. It's the name above every name that ultimately glorifies God. What is being described here at this point is a time in which this will happen with everyone and God will be glorified at that moment. So the question is not, will I declare Jesus as Lord at some point in my life? It's when will I do it? Is Jesus Lord now? Is he Lord now? And if he is Lord now, what does the rest of this text imply and indicate that we should be following? We're commanded to be together for the sake of the gospel. We're commanded to be united in spirit with one purpose. We are commanded to have the same mind as Christ. I opened up with that confession of Peter there in Matthew 16 and what that meant. 
Well, right after that, Jesus began to declare, he says, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be uh, suffer, he's going to be persecuted, he's going to be put to death, and on the third day he's going to rise. And, and Peter said, Lord, Lord, never will this be. And, and Jesus looks at him, we know, my, you might know, where he says, get behind me, Satan, you don't have in mind the things of God. And, and then the text says this, and Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How would the body of Christ change if we were to live this way? How would it change if instead of carrying our rights and our wants, we would be carrying a cross? How would it change if we were to put other people first? And here's another question, man. How can we put this into action? This is what I thought. And I came up with this thought. To live like Jesus, we must love like Jesus. And that sounds simple, right? Because when I came up with the thought, it's like, man, I thought, you know, that's good. I thought, that's really good. I mean, and then I thought I started thinking about all the implications of that. And I thought, well, wait a minute. How can I love like Jesus? I mean, Jesus is God. I'm not. Jesus is perfect. I'm not. Jesus is sinless. I'm not. So how can these things be true of me? And I wrestled with this. I thought, I, I, I can't even preach this message anymore because I don't know how the, I, we can do these things. And, and, and then I remembered a conversation I had with a good friend of mine down in Florida, Bill. So... Bill was a preacher. He still is a preacher. He's just not preaching every weekend at a church. He was heartbroken by two congregations. Tore him apart. Tore him apart. And he came to church with us where we were at down there in Groveland. And he would preach from time to time when I wouldn't be there. And you could see the anger in his sermon. And Bill, was six, he is six foot eight. He's got gigantic hands. He's a gigantic human being. He's intimidating just to be around. And that anger would just spill out of him in his sermons. And then he would walk down the aisles screaming at the top of his lungs. And then one day he said to me, he said, Larry, why won't the Lord let me serve his church anymore? And I thought, man, I don't want to say the wrong thing to Bill right now. And uh, the truth is I thought for a moment. And my mind went to what Jesus did with Peter. Do you remember what he did with Peter when Peter denied him? Jesus was alive, and, and there in John chapter 21, he comes to Peter, and he asks Peter, he said, hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? You know, he's probably pointing at the fish they had just caught, the disciples and everything that was around, and, and Peter says, Lord, you, you know I do, and Jesus said, tend my sheep. Jesus asked him another time, Peter, do, do you love me? Jesus, you know I do, and shepherd my sheep. And a third time, he looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And then we get that indication that Peter begins to get a little upset. And he says, of course I do. And he says one more time, tend my sheep. You know what I noticed about that? As I thought about it and looked over it and I thought about my friend Bill, and then I think about how we can do what God is calling us to do right now. You know, the only way that we're going to be able to love like Jesus is to love him first. Because when Peter was being reinstated there, Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, do you love these guys? He said, no, do you love me? Do you love me? Because if we love Jesus, we'll fight to keep his church together. And if we love Jesus, we'll do the very things that he's called for us to do. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian, who was put to death by the Nazis in Germany, understood this reality. He wrote these words in a little book called Life Together. Human love constructs its own image of the other person 
of what he is and what he should become. It takes the life of the other person into its own hands. Spiritual love recognizes the true image of the other person, which he has received from Jesus Christ, the image that Jesus Christ himself embodied and would stamp upon all men. See, to love Jesus makes it possible to love like Jesus. And it's when we begin to lay aside this stuff for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of each other that I believe we can maintain the unity that it's going to take to reach the world with the gospel message in 2023. So let me ask, if Jesus is Lord, then are these things true for you? And will they be true of us? Let me pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the truth of what your word declares. We thank you that we each have an opportunity right now to allow your spirit to search our hearts and minds. To see, Lord, if there is any way in us that works against the unity of the body of Christ. To see if there's anything that we need to repent of and to confess to you. Knowing, God, that what your word declares, that as we confess those things, you're faithful and just and you forgive. Knowing, God, as your word declares that you filled us with your spirit, knowing that unity in your spirit means there'll be unity in message and that the gospel will be proclaimed from this place. God, help us. Help this to be true of each of us. Help us to trust your Spirit's leading. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. This morning, uh, no doubt this message is really primarily intended for the follower of Christ. But please understand this, if you're in the room and if you've not made a, a decision to follow Christ, I want you to see his love for you right here in this moment. Because what those of us who have accepted Christ have known and come to experience is that he loves us, he died for us, and he's calling for each of us to put our faith in him. And what that means is we understand that we're sinners, that he died in our place, that he resurrected from that grave, that he was one day coming back to take the church to be with him. But he gives us today this opportunity to repent, to turn away from sin and follow him, to confess him to be Lord of our lives, and to submit to Christian baptism. If that's a step you need to take, please. Don't allow another day to go by without making it. Let's stand and sing together.